You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. I'm Simon. Hello, I'm Andrew. And tonight we are going to be talking about a Doctor Who season, which is the first season for a new Doctor. A new Doctor who's just a little bit distant and a little bit more alien. A new season that starts with a story in which the previous Doctor's regular recurring guests turn up to usher in the new Doctor. A story that features a uh, a season that features a story uh, which has a single Sontaran in it. A season that features a story in which we find out a little bit more about the Daleks and why they are so evil. And a season that finishes with the Cybermen. So guys, what season are we going to be talking about tonight? Season 8. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say Series 1. Hey. I know. <laughs> Well, it's not quite series one, Lee. I'm not quite sure where you fished that out of. Did you not see that Centaurin looking around in the background of Keys of Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Oh, I tell you what, the little preview for the Christmas special that was on <clears throat> Children in Need last week. Isn't it nice to see Dan Starkey with the makeup Lovely. On, off, on, off? <laughs> Again? Yeah. He's, yeah. Well, he's done other stuff without it, but, but yes, yes. <laughs> In Doctor Who, though, that's the big thing. Yeah, yeah. Are you two whispering? I know he's, Lee's worrying that he's just heard a spoiler. I was just saying it's Dan Starkey without his makeup. I haven't seen it either, to be honest. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Lee's got his yeah, fingers sorry. in his ears. Well, I, I did spot Dan actually in the next time trailer at the end of uh, Death in Heaven. I did actually spot that it was Dan walking along behind him. So if you've seen that, you've potentially been spoiled. Ah. Yeah, that's yeah. very true. I tell you what's not a spoiler: the fact that because Dan Starkey was in the cast list for the Christmas special, well, everybody, go. everybody, well, everybody in the internet was speculating that it must also feature if the we, rest of the. If, if we go down this avenue, we're going to spend the next half an hour talking about what is and isn't a spoiler. Uh, fair <laughs> enough. It's, 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 no, it's not a spoiler. You just missed the thing on children in need. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, if the BBC have put it out, as far as I'm mm. concerned, not a spoiler. Although yeah. to be fair, I shan't watch the uh, I shan't watch the two minute clip again until Christmas, because otherwise, no, when I get same. to that bit, yeah, when I get to that bit at Christmas, I don't want to have seen it fifteen times already, because no, that'll take me right out of the episode. I don't watch the preview clips. I don't read preview articles. Um, I'll, I'll watch the trailers when they're on TV. I won't go and hunt them down. And then, um, yeah, uh, you know, that, that just, then they serve the purpose. But, um, no, I, I don't want to see two or three minute clips before I get there. Children need notwithstanding. Yeah. You can't not watch mm. children in need. No. Right. I've got an email here from Gerard Gray. He says, hello, blue boxers, J.R. Simon and Lee, and Andrew Gerard. You missed out Andrew. Honorary blue boxer. Definitely. <laughs> I think we've had you on more times than anybody else, Andrew, <laughs> apart from well, maybe Stephen Schapansky and Josh Jiman. 
Josh Zyman. Well, they'll have to pull the socks, or I'll have to pull my socks up and catch up to them. That's illustrious company. Oh, mm. it certainly is. Mm. Oh, and I was mentioned on the memory cheese this week. Do you know what? I was walking around my delivery listening to the memory cheese and they mentioned me and I just got all sorts of tingles. <laughs> and the person whose mail I was trying to deliver at the time, well, I don't want to tell you what happened with them. But put it this way, they'll be they'll be needing to do some renovations on their garden pond. Um Gerard says Gerard says, Thanks for another excellent podcast on Death in Heaven. As usual, your thoughts on this episode made me go back and watch it again and enjoy it even more. I'm a little concerned, though, at the thought of the show being cancelled because the right showrunner cannot be found. Well, this is... We were talking about certain rumours that were going around in our last episode, Andrew. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Rumours that... No doubt, have no foundation whatsoever. Absolutely. Anyway, so that's mm. enough negative thoughts from me. Looking forward to your review of season twelve, one of my favourite seasons. I remember watching Genesis of the Daleks as a child and thinking, "Should I be watching this? This is for adults." It's definitely the moment I became a fan of the show. I still have the same love for Doctor Who as I did all those years ago. Cheers, guys. That's that all right. Was... It's me. Sorry. Oh, is it? It sounds yeah. like Simon. Hi, I'm sorry. That's the noise oh, he usually makes when he goes off for a toilet break before we start recording. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> right. I'm, do- I'm doing my chainmail fly. Back with you. <laughs> so, does everybody remember the first time they saw season 12? And did they see it as a season on the telly? I'm guessing, Andrew, that you probably did. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, very strong memories. And what about Simon? What about you? Um, you know, my first story was Planet of the Spiders, which obviously, and that was the rerun, so it led straight into Robots. So it was completely the first complete season I ever experienced as a whole. Do you remember so, all of it from back then, or do you just have sort of spotty memories of bits? I think I've got chunks of every story in my memory. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, I do. I do remember being very afraid of. Da- well, I, remember, I remember the giant robot, and um, I remember being literally hiding behind the sofa from Davros more than the Daleks themselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I love the Cybermen as well, but I don't know whether that's a memory of the program or whether it's a memory of the Weetabix cards. It's one of those. <laughs> what about you then, Lee? Do you remember this from the first time around, or were you too I- young? Well, or just too actually... spaced out. <laughs> my family probably were. Um, no, my first memory was uh, Robots of Death. That's the strongest memory, possibly. Oh, of course, yeah. But um, yeah, no, this, it's seventy-five, wasn't it? This series, so I'd have been yeah. four uh, or five. So no, I definitely wouldn't have been watching it at that point. The first time I saw um, uh, anything from this was the Revenge of the Cybermen video VHS, and it was a pirate copy. So it was even worse than normal. It was hideously expensive Oi. to buy, though, wasn't it? It was initially. It was about 40 quid when it first came out. It was. Mm. Yeah, that's right. It was ridiculous <clears throat> amounts of money. <laughs> and yeah, but I then videos it. were. I remember, I, I think I bought that for 40 Also, Magnum Force and The Exorcist, <laughs> both of which were 40 pounds. <laughs> 40 pounds in the, Magnum sort of the early 80s. You know. Weren't yeah, the cases so, like really thick and really big? They like were. Magnum, uh, Magnum Force and Exorcist were because they were Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers did these really thick plastic covers. 
But they also did it on really thick tape as well. Because mm, yeah. by the end of VHS, if you had like a 90-minute tape, in the little window where it showed the tape, it'd be half empty because the tape was so thin. But back <laughs> in those days, they used really thick tape, so it filled up the entire window, even though it was only 90 minutes long. Yeah. But they I were think, built the to last. That was, that, that's what I was about to say, actually. The tape that they used was... I, I'm, it must have been a different quality of tape because it did oh, seem much to last better, for ages. Yeah. Um, but even, even my pirate copy... <laughs> And then by the time you got to Silver Nemesis, the tape was so poor that it looked awful even before you put but, it in the machine. But for Revenge of the Cybermen, for me, when that came out, so that came out, so this was 1975. I think Robot Episode One was December 74. I think that's right. Um, yeah, yeah. But say 1975, and so when this came out in 1986, I I would have paid twice or three times that to, to see Revenge of the Cybermen yeah. and just mainline straight back to when I was 12, 12 and a half sure. and, and loving this every week. Yeah, because obviously mm. anybody under a certain age just don't, they, they just wouldn't even understand how exciting it would have been to have, um, to own a Doctor Who product like that, a, a show. You own the show, yeah. you can put it in the DVD, uh, the DVD player, the video player and just, you know, press play and off you go. Watching it linear, of course, you can't dip in and out. You've got to watch it from start to finish. Yeah. But yeah. that was so exciting for us, you know. It's a new yeah, because I mean, when you saw it at the time, you thought that was it. You you get an omnibus. I, I remember the Genesis of the Daleks omnibus very well, but that was a that was cut down into like an hour and ten minutes. Oh, that's uh, true. Which, they were edited which, badly, which did it, weren't they? Well, actually, it did it some favours, but um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. Yeah. We'll get to that mm. for sure. <laughs> But you, I, I, I can't talk about exci excitement. I, my uh, I, actually, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what it is later. But I think my single most exciting moment of hearing, seeing anything in Doctor Who came during this season. I'll tell you. Oh, you better later. not forget now. I now won't that you've forget teased that. us with that. You no, no, I remember it all right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know the other thing about? I was just going to say the other thing about those early VHS tapes because they were edited. And you know, fans have this thing about, oh, it mustn't be edited. But I loved those edits. It turned them into little movies. It yeah. really felt like a movie putting some of those on. It was Brain of Morbius, the one that um, was severely kind of hacked. But oh, actually, 60 minute I, version, I, yeah. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't mind it strangely enough. But when I saw the full version, I was just blown away by how, how much was in there that they'd cut. I thought, wow, you've really hacked this to bits. Um, just to, before we move on and talk to, about these... Uh, shows individually the uk gold um i think put a whole load the whole run of color doctor who on in the on the 90s and that's possibly when i managed to see the rest of the season actually thinking about it mm -hmm. i may have caught bits on uh you know kind of pirate video and things in the, in the 80s of genesis but generally speaking everything was uh from uk gold mm. right Let's take three short emails about the season as a whole, and then let's get into the five stories. And as usual in these situations, we will be doing them in reverse order of how the listeners of the Blue Box podcast voted them from least favourite to favourite. But the three emails, Damien Ashley says, My first season and my earliest show memories. Just look at those stories, though. Truly the golden age. Matt Barber says, a genuinely consistent season with an early arc narrative of the sort that the series started with back in 1963, but with a strange transition Pertwee story tacked onto the beginning. And Miles Northcott says, This is when Doctor Who really kicked into gear and began churning out classic after classic after classic, 
When you consider that this season was supposed to have Terror, the, Terror of the Zygons as its closing story, it shows how strong it was. That would have been three top-draw classics with three strong, solid tales to back them up, probably still in the top ten seasons of the show's history. Mm. And it's hard to disagree. Does anybody disagree that this is one of the classic seasons, really, in you know the entire 50 years, let alone the first 26? Mm. No. Yeah, it's a right old bag of trash, isn't it? okay of the five stories would anybody like to hazard a guess which one came in last position which does not with with this i mean this thing of ranking you know yeah you don't make doctor who shows to be in competition with each other you just and it's funny when we did season 18 when you strong arm me into season 18 (laughs) when we started out the podcast he said and now the 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 one that's come last and i thought Bugger! <laughs> Forgotten that you did that. Oh uh, yeah. Full <laughs> circle's going to be in there somewhere. But but these are, you know, I I I I I really do reckon that you, there's, there's going to be. Well, you'll tell me, you know. But I think there's so little in between all these, and in any other uh, yeah. season, almost any of these could have been top of the uh, top of the pile. But the way we with the way we do it with the voting, that the, there is quite a bit in between the stories because certain stories tend to get voted top and certain yeah. stories tend to get voted bottom. But to be honest, most of the people who actually said anything said, you know, I can't really choose. I've just put them in this order because you know, well, I, I've put them I, in this order. I look forward to having a discussion around what is popular perception around some of these stories. Anyway, let's well, go. Yeah. <clears throat> but we've got we've got a few notes from our listeners on each of the stories, not right. too much, just a little yeah, bit. Yeah. And we've got a surprise coming up later in the episode. I think it's a surprise anyway. Mm. Um and you know, the only other thing I was going to say is the reason why we do this voting is so that we don't have to do them in chronological order, which yeah. I think is dull. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I I'd rather work from the one that was kind of maybe the one that people didn't like quite as much. I'm not questioning the, one... the methodology. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. No, you, you, so, you carry on. You actually, carry on. It's, it's pretty question. good because it kind of crosses over the waves of energy, doesn't it? If, you, if you're talking mm. about a, uh, an episode you don't particularly like, then it's better to do it while you've got some energy. And then you kind of... <laughs> Well, at the beginning of the show. Yeah, yeah. yeah but then we tend no, no, to but, get to uh, the end of the episode and we've got nothing left to say about the ones we do. But this want. is the thing with putting putting things in this order. Is you, if, you, you know, if you've got five diamonds and you're deciding which is the least shiny diamond, you go, that's a rubbish diamond. Well, actually, it's a pretty good diamond. There. Hey, there this go. is season 12. We've already established right. all good diamonds. <laughs> in fact, the story that's coming last... The story that's coming last mm. is probably the most insubstantial of the five stories, yeah. but it's probably <clears> also <throat> the one I've got the strongest memories of. And there's a specific geographical reason why I've got strong memories of this story. <laughs> Would anybody like to guess what it is? Wiki is it home? some turn experiment down there in West Country, sir? Oh, it certainly is. Is it? <laughs> Filmed... Filmed oh, half an hour's drive from where we live. Sorry, I know. I... Sorry, sir. I thought they spoiled that down there, but they don't know down there, sir. Do they, sir? They, they spoiled. I was going to do a South African accent, trying to be really sure, <laughs> but I can't do one. <laughs> <laughs> I realised halfway through that I don't know how to do a South African accent. No, it's uh, all I'm going to say. You understand? Is... You understand? Right. Oh, yeah, all I was going to say yeah. was, I don't understand. I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really surprised uh, that was uh, was last anyway. To be honest, <clears throat> but then again, well, it's the, my own personal. It's a two part. It's a two part. So it's got that going against. Yeah, it right it's mm. two parts. There's not a lot of story to it, to be frank. 
It's just a bit of a mm. run around on Dartmoor with Esondaran. It's fantastic. It holds your attention, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Oh, and it looks amazing. Is it? Is it the first Sontaran story where we see Sontaran's head deflate? Yeah, probably. So I did watch it. I'm trying to think Lynx. what happened to Lynx uh, when he um, got he taken out of the Time Warrior. He just stumbles into yeah. the ship, and they run out, and then it blows up, doesn't mm. it? Mm. <laughs> Do I we honestly, see... I honestly misheard you there, JR, when you said ship. I thought you meant something else, and I just had the idea of a medieval cow dung area in the <laughs> castle. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. Sweet lord. No one deserves you... to go that way. No. Look... Um, okay, I'm going to do this. Since we're on accents, um, mm. I can't believe we were doing something like a Bristol accent, pretending to be from the West Country. Sorry, sir. <laughs> we'll do it again, sir. Terrible. Yeah, but I did the same thing after you did it. I did the same thing as well. Uh, Miles mm. Northcott says, Doctor Who does Dartmoor. Actually, Dartmoor did... No, I should say, Doctor Who does Dartmoor. Actually, Dartmoor did Doctor Who as poor old Tom got beaten by it. He did. Well, at Tor. Yeah. Indeed. Mm. And then got mm-hmm. taken to Newton Abbott Hospital. And Hound Tor is, is my local tour. I go up there a lot. A lot, a lot, a lot. And actually, if you go down to, um, strangely enough, if you go to Bear, I think it's Bears Lake Inn, Bears Lake Inn, uh, on the Tavistock Road, uh, there's a picture of Tom Baker actually hanging up in the bar. Which is odd because Hound Tour isn't actually anywhere near that pub, so I'm not quite sure what happened there. Whether he, whether they all drove over and had a had a pint there or something, but uh, yeah, well, they may well have fact. done. Yeah. So, what do we think of? Because this is basically the very first time, Spearhead from Space, notwithstanding, because although that was entirely on location in inverted commas, you know, a lot of it was filmed indoors in bits of. Studio BBC facilities. This is actually Doctor Who for the very first time entirely on location. It's entirely on Dartmoor. And that, I mean, at the age I first saw this, that didn't mean a lot because all Doctor Who looked the same to somebody who's six. But when, I guess when you're 12, Andrew, did you notice? Yeah, I mean, there are two, there are two ways I look back at series 12. One is how I look at it now and having rewatched much of it, you know, getting ready for this podcast. And my memory of it at the time, um, and that's probably going to come up again as a theme as we go through this. But mm. I, I remember I liked it. I, I liked the story. I didn't like the fact that it was video. If it had been film, I'd have been fine yeah. with it. But mm. and, I, and this is one of the curious things uh, going through the seventies. You get the actual program makers were very keen on videotape when they had to use it because they they you know made the life easier. They felt it was easier to edit, etc. It was cheaper. Um, much, much cheaper than using film. But I actually, you know, and all, all the way through classic Doctor Who, when almost whenever they used videotape, I was disappointed by the way it looked. Because uh, do it you just mean, didn't glossy enough. Do you mean just outdoors, or do you mean indoors as well? No, outdoors, when they used it in place of film. Because I've um, got to be honest, I kept my copy of the original DVD release of Tomb of the Cybermen because it's not vid-fired. Because I think it, I think even on the indoor stuff in the studio, it kind of looks nicer when it's not been vid-fired. It gives it an archive look. Yeah. Well, yeah. It gives it a filmic quality, doesn't it? Because the um, frames per second are different. Uh, when it's, uh, how is it filmed? Yeah. The... 
Well, all this studio stuff, and let's face it, back in the 60s, almost everything was almost all studio stuff. Yeah. It was all filmed on videotape. That's mm. right. But what's but the film bit... quality? Is it because they've just stuck a camera next to a kind of a found episode, as it were, and, and sent it out to other um, TV stations around the world? Is that how they kind of did it? They literally just yeah. recorded they... off a TV screen? Yeah, yeah. Okay. They project it and just point a camera at the mm. screen. Yeah. The other interesting thing about that, while we're on the subject, seeing as we're not really talking about season 12 at all, apart from glowing memories, mm. uh, when they did that, when they pointed the camera at the, you know, the video copy to make a film copy, of course the camera's slightly zoomed in on it, so you lose the outer edge of the picture. Mm. And the most noticeable example of this is in... The Dalek Invasion of Earth. Some of the stuff in the first episode of Dalek Invasion of Earth, while the Doctor and Ian are clambering around inside that warehouse, top of Ian's head keeps disappearing off the screen. And that's because the top of the picture's missing. Mm. 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 Right. Getting back to the Santana experiment. Yes. (laughs) It's interesting, because this was actually... um, It's it's interesting. I mean, well, that's the whole, whole season... It's basically stories that have been commissioned by Barry Letts and Terence Dix. Mm. But uh, from this story onwards, um, because this was made before the Ark in Space, although Ark in Space and Transmission Order came before it, uh, were actually being made by um, uh, Philip Hinchcliffe as producer and Robert Holmes as script editor. And what Philip Hinchcliffe... Was it Philip Hinchcliffe? Well, yeah. it made the decision that I'd say that after having said that these stories have been commissioned, but they, but they had been because, of course, there were problems with Ark and Space that we'll come to. But I mean, so yeah. rather than having a six-part story that was partly in the studio and partly filmed, they'd have a two-parter that was filmed, if you like, so one location, and a four-parter entirely in the studio. So the Ark and Space became the four episodes entirely in the studio, and the Centauran experiment was what fell out of this idea to have... Uh, the, the entire filming allocation of that six-parter just become a two-part story. And then and Bob the Holmes next... went to Bob Baker and Dave Martin, the script writers, and said, we need something really quickly because we've had this other stuff fall through. Um, Santarin's Earth, uh, talking about after the solar flares, and um, he gave uh, Bob and Dave a rundown, a very detailed rundown, apparently, their, their reproductive habits, apparently. Um <laughs> Uh, right. what, what the Santarans were about. Um, and then they came up with this story in, in fairly short order. Well, Santaran Experiment is basically the only story in that entire season that is sort of Hinchcliffe and Holmes rather than mm-hmm. Barry Letts. Um, mm-hmm. The commission, I mean. Because of that. Because the Ark in Space mm-hmm. started out... The Ark in Space started out as a John <clears throat> Lucarotti six-part. No, it's not. It's a Christopher Langley story called the space station and then that, oh, was that, that didn't work out for reasons i think I, I don't think anyone knows why but just unworkable and then john luca Rotti was brought in as supposedly a safe pair of hands i mean mm. we'll come to the ark in space and then that mm. uh, for details that are better understood that didn't work out either and then robert holmes had to um, produce what became the ark in space well Good donald title. tosh Donald Tosh has got quite a lot to say about what a safe pair of hands John Lucarotti is, but we shan't go into that. <laughs> go on, Simon, mm, you're about to say uh, something. No, no, I was making a silly comment about the title. I said it's a good title, the Space Station. Well, I gave him the silly comment, you're right. Yes. <laughs> I gave him the set. 
And I, when, when you mentioned that, I was just thinking about Alien, but we'll get to that as well. Um, I, I, the Sontaran experiment's a funny old little thing, isn't it? Because if you look at the plot um, of, of the actual thing, the story itself, it literally is just a couple of aliens testing out some humans to see whether they well, want to It's not even a couple a... of aliens, it's no. just one. Oh, sorry, one alien t- testing a couple of one alien <laughs> humans. One alien to uh, to invade an empty Earth because there's a, nobody on it, is there at that point? Because well, uh, just a yeah, few yeah. people on it, possibly. It, it's it, it doesn't really stand up to much scrutiny. I mean, you've got the, the no. fleet marshal, I think it is. Field marshal, I think. Yeah, that, well, I think it's field marshal Steyer was the the main Centauran character, but the the other Kevin Lindsay Centauran with the knobbly bits on his collar was he the fleet marshal or? Grand, Grand like Marshal yeah. or something like that. But he said, look, we've got a whole fleet here waiting to invade. <laughs> Can you just hurry up and find <laughs> out what is yeah. the amount of weight you have to put in the, on the uh, the human ribcage <laughs> before it collapses? And then, <laughs> then once you've found that out, get hurry up, hurry up, because once you've found that out, we're coming over the hill, boys. Yeah, um, it's, there's a great a planet that's already <laughs> empty. Yeah, the guy, the guy's doing a bit of weightlifting. Uh, that's kind of like the test of the human endurance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, the influence. What is really important again is a, as, as a stamp of the influence of um, Philip Hinchcliffe and Robert Holmes. I mean, to get just really the the golden pairing, I think, for Doctor Who mm. is again the the um, and. Um, and Rodney Bennett as well, a director here, the influence he had on this, because the the, the draft of the script that came in, the settings for this would have been uh, a medieval hall with medieval torture instruments. Um, but it was after a location trip, and I, I don't know if Roger Murray Leach, the designer, was involved, but certainly Rodney Bennett and Philip Hinchcliffe were. And they, they, they went down to the West Country and they saw how in Torn, and they thought, no, oh, this will do. And then there were rewrites, and um, so what would have been actual medieval torture and implements were replaced by these more futuristic elements, which I think more palatable to um, yeah. the audience of the time, anyway. Um, uh, and it, 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 really, it really, you know, it worked. It worked. It was a, you know, it's a lovely setting. It's a, it's a nice economic setting for them as well, because they found with the rocks that they could get lots of different angles and settings within the different. Um, uh, so the ver- the variety of locations and a very very uh, compact geographical location, and those rocks really quite close to a road because of course when they were doing the OBV they needed to be pretty close to the van and I don't think mm. there was too much trouble getting the van close enough, and of course that rock as Lee will tell you it's pretty mm. big so you can get quite a lot mm. out of that rock without having to wander too far off the road. Yeah, if it, if it's hound. Tour that we're talking about. There's a car park, and there's got to be at least a ten to fifteen minute walk up to the. Yeah, but so imagine... no, but further up from the, yeah. the car park's down at the bottom of the hill, but the road yes. actually goes up parallel to the path, so the road actually passes right close to the tour itself. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, it's... and that's what I'm thinking. So yeah. it's it's become quite iconic though, as a visually as an episode. It's kind of the Doctor Who version of that episode of Star Trek. Um, is it where the where Kirk gets stuck on that planet and has a one to one battle with the Gorn? Hmm. Is it? None of yeah. us know, Simon. None of us know. Oh, you, <laughs> mm. I do. No idea I what you're talking about. Yeah, it's, a, it's another. It's another. Sounds like a Blake Seven episode to me. That's that's. <laughs> he's ah, got a jewel. That's a good link, isn't it? Because the, the little mm. tiny robot thing that clicks mm. along and whirs and buzzes. The one that very... makes the robot in the waters of Mars look like 
<laughs> Professor Kettlewell's robot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it looks identical. How can you to go the... just before you carry on, Lee? How can you go from Kettlewell's robot to this in the space of two stories? I don't know. It's unbelievable. Isn't it? They must have had a couple of bits of packaging left over and go. Let's just make a robot. Um, well, I know the, I know the decision was made initially. I know initially there was going to be a man inside that 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 well the, this entire robot, and then it was decided you know go entirely mechanical. I think it works all right. Do you know, I don't know if you know this, it's a little-known fact. Do you know the Weetabix promotion from 1975? Oh, yes. They sent, Weetabix sent a load of of the boxers to the BBC to try them out, to see what they thought of the cards, and, of course, hoping that they'd eat lots of Weetabix and get hooked on the stuff and buy loads more afterwards. But the upshot of that was that Roger Murray Leach actually made the robot in the Sontaran experiment from those Weetabix boxes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how many minutes? Go and sit there? in the corner, JR. <laughs> and when you're ready to apologise, come back. <laughs> <laughs> got, can I say something about the design of Go the Sontaran on, spaceship? Gonna... You know, we, on, we, originally, yeah. we originally got a, the Sontaran spaceship, didn't we? And it's, and it's uh, a round globe. And I just, I, I just think it's Most, a great yeah, design. A, a and it's, it's worked in the new series as well as the old series, and they've kept the design. It's just brilliant. Mm. Do you know, you don't know who designed that, do you? Because it was just a, I thought it was a cracking idea for a little spaceship. Mm. Well, that was Simple Time works. Warrior, wasn't it? <clears throat> yeah. Mm. Was it Roger Murray Leach? It wouldn't have you, been by the on the Time Warrior, would well, it? I don't know who it was in Time Warrior. I think it's just, uh, as, as flimsy a story <clears throat> as it is. It's, it's quite important in the mythos of of the Sontarans, though, isn't it? It's funny they do this thing of getting one, one particular individual representative of a race in order to understand the race in the same way as they did with Dalek. Uh, but but of course this time we actually had a fleet of them and and you know with invasion on their minds as opposed to links on his own in the Time War. Um, uh, and the mm. and the fleet, they take one look at the scary man standing on the planet saying no you can't come here, and they turn around and go away again. <laughs> he was that far away from saying this place is defended. Yes, <laughs> this planet is yeah. defended. Or but, just um, pointing around him at all the grass and saying, "Get off my lawn." But it is lovely, you know. It's still it's lovely stuff. I love to watch it. And and again, it's difficult for me to remove myself from having been twelve years old and just watching it and just mouth open thing. I love this. I love this. Although I didn't take the Tom Baker straight away, and I think a lot of people didn't. And I think there might be a bit of revisionism thinking that he. Did take off right away. I I don't remember it that way, but um, what get what gets me as well. This is the second story that Tom Baker recorded, and and yet I can't for one minute imagine John Pertwee, no, saying those lines or behaving at all like Tom Baker did. And there's um, he, he nailed it pretty quickly, didn't he? It didn't take yeah. long for him to get that his own character and his own doctor. He's so off the and, wall. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And there's a moment that's funny. Yeah. I, I I tweeted earlier and I vined earlier. I, I see. I just love it when you know we think the doctor's been shot. In, in, well, obviously he's not, but we you know you're made to think he's been shot and killed by Lynx. But it turns out he he surprises Harry and oh no, I'm still alive. And he pulls out this piece of metal that's come from um, a locking mechanism on on the Nerva Beacon, uh, yeah. and um, uh, and then says very important Harry Harry Sullivan he's been at the time says uh, never throw anything away when he's he, then he throws it away and there's a great look for me and Marta as he watches, and then she, <laughs> watches this thing being thrown away, 
And then immediately the doctor says, where's my 500-year diary? I made some notes about the Centaurans. And then turns to Harry and says, it's a mistake to clutter your pockets, Harry. <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. And I just look at it. I, th- I can't imagine John Pertwee saying those lines. And, and yet the, the common thing is, you know, uh, and, and Bob Baker and Dave Martin didn't know. And in fact, Bob Baker said that even Robert Holmes didn't know at the time who the new doctor was going to be. and was afraid it was going to be Mr. Pastry. Um, and so oh, yeah. the natural thing would be to write for John Pertwee, and, and, and you know, I just cannot imagine those lines. Well, I mean, obviously we know Tom Baker um, mm. liked to ad ad lib. I don't know whether that early on, when you get when you get a job, you tend to just do as you're told. I but don't I would think imagine he would have been doing even much of that. yeah, exactly. Mm. I think even at that yeah. early stage, he was probably saying, "No, maybe I should do it like this," um, and off he off he goes, and they just let him. And do, do you it. know what? As well, the in in the night of the Doctor, where you've got. Paul McGann doing the six minutes so that he can do the regeneration but it's written by Stephen Moffat and the rhythm of the dialogue is the same as the rhythm of the dialogue that Matt Smith does but because Paul McGann reads it so totally differently you can't actually imagine Matt Smith saying those words I guess there's Mm. some of that in here too Tom Baker's reading of of those lines is so distinctive it kind of changes the way you understand the lines, I guess. Mm. I suppose if John Pertwee had done that dialogue, you'd probably be saying now, well, I can't imagine Tom Baker doing it. But Tom Baker, he brings his own rhythm to the speech. Mm. Yeah. Any, anyway, mm. Dylan Deadline Reese says of the Sontaran experiment, always being overlooked. It may not be as good as the Time Warrior... But it's the last time on TV that the Sontarans are truly convincing. A great cast and a great little story. And so... Nicely said. mm. Mm. And so we'll move on and uh, I'll give you a quote about the next story. Uh, I'm trying to find one that doesn't give it away. Okay, I found one that doesn't give it away. I'm going to give you one quote about the next story and then you're going to tell me which story you thought came in fourth. Christopher Bryant says, I've always found it a little bit overrated and occasionally silly. I mean, I like silly, but not so much here. Still, season 12 is so brilliant that coming fifth in his voting is no tragedy. Any of you guess which story that that was? Is that Robot? Robot, I reckon. It is Robot. Mm. Now, I'm guessing, well, when we think of robot, I guess the thing that we all think of is the robot itself, isn't it? Um, Yes. (laughs) I don't. I think of Tom Baker. Oh, really? Yeah, utterly. Yeah. Oh, wow. I can't get away from the... Yeah. I can't get away from the Weetabix cards. I really can't. (laughs) You need to be cured, sir. It is. It's all iconic imagery. You mean Professor Kettlewell's robot is also yeah. made of Weetabix cards? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a beautiful piece, though, isn't it? I mean, it's an amazing design. You love it, don't you, Jar? The robot yeah, is Yeah, I mean, it's mm. one of the strongest memories I have of um, Doctor Who from when I was a kid. My, as you know, earliest memories are the two Pertwee Dalek stories and then the maggots and the spiders. But then outside of Daleks or giant versions of tiny things that are scary anyway the robot in this story it's just 
Do you know, if you send somebody off and say, right, design a robot to be a scary robot in a story for kids on television on Saturday nights, action adventure, sci-fi, they would not come back with a robot that looks remotely like that, would they? It's one of the oddest designs. It's ahead of its time. It's very very 80s shoulder pads. Yeah. Um, Five years uh, early. Yeah. It must have been an absolute pig to wear. Uh, for the actor, but uh, one of the best designs, one of my favourite designs on the whole robot is obviously, I think, maybe this is everybody's favourite part, is the kind of eye area, the head area, which is very Art Deco. Yeah. Mm. It's got this beautiful look to it. Mm. Mm. The, uh, the, the, the the action figures you get for Doctor Who, this this was never out there as an action figure in its own right, but it was one of these where you collected the parts Yeah. going back about five, six years ago, and and we sorry, uh, I sorry, uh, my children uh, <laughs> collected all the other figures that had the parts, and uh, you know, so it really appreciate as you put the thing together. You know, it it was and is and remains, uh, you know, one of the best costumes that the uh, this the classic series ever put together. Um, I mean, he, he couldn't hold a laser gun properly, but apart from that, yeah. um, <laughs> uh, or, or cut was, or cut wire fences. <laughs> Or cut wire fences, and um, it's fun. I mean, it holds a special place in my heart because not only you know, again, as a twelve-year-old watching this, I was absolutely the perfect age for it. But um, I remember in October nineteen seventy-five, I went to um, the Doctor Who exhibition in Blackpool for the first time, and uh, walked in there, walked down the steps, and one of the first things I saw was the robot, um, and it, and as I remember it, it spoke as well. They had a they had a voice track going through it. And um, someone please tell me I'm wrong, but that's how I remember it. And I just I know, remember just being be, yeah. really, really struck by it. And um, uh, and in fact, one of the first Target books I bought, I went through the exhibition, absolutely wide-eyed, amazed, took that further step into fandom, actually, in those 30 minutes or whatever it took to get through the exhibition. Walked right. in the shop, and they had Target books, and I bought Bombadil Snowman and uh, the Cybermen, Doctor and the Cybermen, and Doctor Who and the giant robot, as it was called, um, yes. and and then to myself in the story. Um, yeah, How was that? Was How was that reading a target book of a story that had been on so recently? Because that was actually a good book, but because it had well, been on so recently, it didn't spoil it at all. No, well, I was twelve, so ten months would have felt like a long, long yeah. time, you know. Um, uh, but at least it was a story I had some memory of. I mean, I, I. I remember the Cybermen from uh, Patrick Troughton's time, but not necessarily specifically what story they came from. Um, yeah. So the, the first book I was always going to get was Doctor Who, the Cybermen, the Cybermen and uh, uh, Patrick Troughton's image on the front. Um, uh, but I absolutely lapped up. And the Abominable Snowman, I just got, I, I, I mean, I, I knew the Yeti. I remember the Yeti from uh, the Web of Fear as well. I remember watching that. Um, so that's, that's why I got that one. And yeah, giant robot book I got. I think because yeah, because the story had made such made such an impact on me, and the, seeing the robot there as well, so it was a nice memento of uh, you know that trip down the stairs into the basement into the the exhibition at Blackpool. Is this story before we get on to Tom? Because we've got to talk about Tom in a second. But is mm. this story the last time that we get to see Elizabeth Slade and Sarah Jane Smith? doing what she originally did, which was going out and investigating stuff. It is, isn't it? Well, maybe thankfully, because this is also one of the most outrageous coincidences in the history of the show, that uh, uh, just at the point 
where units are getting information about these places getting broken into. Sarah just happens to go off and investigate this think tank, which just mm. happens. To, and, and, who, and they show her this giant robot as well, and she wanders in, talk, you know, just as the brigadier and the doctor having a discussion about what could possibly um, have broken into this this bunker comp. This it turns out yeah. it's the same location, isn't it? It's not the bunker, but it's a, a place like it. And she talks about a giant robot, eight feet tall, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, yeah, so her investigations are kind of shoehorned into the adventure. Podcasting's, um, uh, podcasting's horrible, isn't it? We can be really horrible about these things and actually completely break the nostalgia of it all by saying how coincidental it all is, because it really, really is. But actually, when yeah. you're watching it You suspend kid, disbelief you a lot, but this is... I, I, <laughs> no, I've always thought it was outrageous. Actually, yeah, part, of the, part of the reason that I think this is one of the last time, or the last time that she has an investigative reporter is because, again, the development of the series, from now on, it was going back into space for the yes. first time in five years. Yeah, so oh, her, yes. her options uh, yeah. were limited, really. Andrew, can yeah, I ask but, you about... Sorry, mm. Andrew, can I ask you about the actual K1 when he, when he does the CSO growing? You know, we yeah. all see it as a terrible piece of effect work now, but at the time mm. when you were 12, did you recognise that as being a bit bit cheesy or did it not even a little bit cheesy but went with it a little bit cheesy okay. but I, I absolutely went with it i had no problems with it as a 12 year old yeah. at all um so. not say later later i there, there were some other stories later i did have issues with the cso but um mm. uh, yeah I, and it's <laughs> it, it, i've seen a lot worse in other programs and other channels and um <laughs> and again it's very experimental at the time it's really yeah. it was really pushing it um, and it's probably something that two or three years before they, they probably wouldn't even have attempted. And it's pro actually probably something even a year later they would probably wouldn't have attempted because Philip Hinchcliffe might have looked at it and said, "I don't think we can pull that off." But it's absolute—that's that, the sort—that's the thing that tells you that this is a Barry Letts produced yes. story because it was actually made as part of the previous block, wasn't it? Mm. Um, it was filmed at the same time as, as uh, Planet of the Spiders. You got all the um, like using forced perspective and stuff like that, which is you know still being used now, isn't it? It's yeah, some good stuff. I kept rewatching recently again that 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 tank. I guess it's just again I had it in my head it was so awful, but then when it turned up at the end of episode three, and then that long reprise at the end of, at the beginning of episode four, I thought actually that's not so bad. Andrew, Andrew, come on! I'll deal no, with no, I know, well. I know, but I, no, I was watching it and I thought you know that's. That's not that. That would have been seen by audiences of the time on a television a quarter the size of the ones we watch on these days. Yeah. It wouldn't have been nearly as noticeable. And I neither would the CSO, quite frankly. No, I, I do love this episode, mm. don't get me wrong, but I do I do find that tank bit just every time it comes I crack up. It's brilliant. You know, this is the great thing about Doctor Who though. The stories don't need to make sense and the stories don't need to add up and that the acting doesn't need to be brilliant and the no. dialogue doesn't need to be natural. It hits something else, doesn't it? There's, you're there's watching... no again, there's no series that demonstrates that better. Or no season of the classic series that demonstrates that better than season twelve. There's so much of what happens in all the stories mm. across this. It's illogical, doesn't hold up, but it just looks great. It's well acted. It's um, it just yeah. delivers. Mm. And I think a... that's, that's the other thing, isn't it? The actors take it on board and they and they eat <coughs> their hearts out. So they're very believable. I mean, all three of them, Harry Sullivan's, Harry Sullivan, Sarah Jane, Doctor. You know, they are so strong. 
uh, in, this, yes. in this season. Uh, together they work perfectly as well. Brilliant kind of team. Um, this this mm. this actual the robot was um, left over from John Pertwee, wasn't it? Or was it because it was Barry Letts' last one? It felt very John Pertwee. Um, so you could plop him into this adventure really easily. Whereas immediately, yeah. I think, like you said, Andrew Phillips Hinchcliffe and Robert Holmes took over, and then suddenly you get this immediate shift in tone, strangely. Yeah. Where mm. Tom Baker really stamps his authority on the show is the scene in the Jeep, mm-hmm. the Daisy, the scene with the crow Daisy. As soon as yeah. you started speaking, yeah. I knew that's what you were going to say, yes. Say, and that, and there's one direction his... you haven't considered. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But the way he says it, he's so he's so distanced from the other characters around him, but mm, yeah. interacting with them perfectly well. <coughs> and his performance of it is utterly, utterly different from the one that John Pertwee would well, have he's, given. Well, he's lying back, he's got his hand mm. shoved into his face, he's got his feet up on the jig, you know, and just so and far... Can't, the, yeah, the, what, you the can't one... imagine John Pertwee having done that. And yet the, mm. the scene as written probably didn't even have that in it. No, no, it wouldn't have done no, and this is Tom Baker. Oh, I can saying, check. Cause right. I've got the script book in front of me. But oh, um, have you? yeah, oh, that's very good. You, yeah, there's a book. It's still available now. Actually, there's a book of all the scripts of that series. Oh yeah, very good notes. But um, the the one scene I thought was very kind of John Pertwee was towards the end when the Doctor is getting together that formula that he's going to throw at the robot. Yeah. He's in the lab with Harry, and that's one where you look at it, you think, yeah, that's that's a John Pertwee scene. Yeah, I'm not just John Pertwee. It's John Pertwee and Liz Shaw, isn't it? Yes, yeah. yes. I was, I was He's coming say, up with a scientific solution. Yeah, su- yeah. Surprised there isn't a round of sandwiches on the table and a bottle of wine. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dylan Deadline Reese said of this, a run-of-the-mill unit story that is made magical by Tom Baker's first appearance. <laughs> I could watch it again and again, and indeed have. Weird Bean says, something about seeing Tom Baker in a John Pertwee story is just that little bit special. (laughs) Miles Northcott says, the K1 design has yet to be bettered and is as iconic today as it ever was. Mm -hmm. Considering the Hinchcliffe era was the one which borrowed most heavily from classic literature and films, this Let's and Dick's tale was basically King Kong. Even the Palatoy tank can't spoil it, and Tom erupts into his role immediately. By the end of part one, you already consider him the Doctor. And finally, Paul Driscoll, who voted this first out of the five stories in season 12, says, I know, robot, you might ask, but it's a sentimental, nostalgic thing. Mm. It offers up the template, doesn't it, of the regeneration sequence of trying out all the different costumes. It's the one that kind of started this. is Barry Letts doing a regeneration and he, Barry Letts is the guy who who sets down in stone what regeneration is. Tenth Planet and into Power of the Daleks nobody had a clue what was going on and nobody bothered to explain it. War Games into Spearhead from Space was entirely different because it was something that was triggered by the Time Lords so still even by that stage the series hadn't said what regeneration really was. But Barry Letts, throughout his five years as a producer, he kind of, he must have always had in the back of his mind, because there's lots of Time Lord stuff going on in the background of some of those stories. And he must, him and Terence Dix, must always have had an idea of what they really thought regeneration was. 
And then when Barry Letts comes into right Planet of the Spiders, and then Terence Dix writes Robot, it's like that regeneration with all the sort of Buddhist stuff that um, Barry Letts throws into it. That's like that team saying, right, we are establishing right here and right now what Doctor Who really is. And yes, everything that happens across those two stories becomes the foundation for how regeneration and the post-regeneration will be seen in the future of the programme. And we still hark back to it now. Mm. Which is the reason why we're doing season 12 at the end of series 8. I love the fact that when he goes into the TARDIS, I mean, the Brigadier's waiting there, you know, tapping his cane, and uh, the Doctor runs in, comes out with a, a different outfit on, literally two seconds. Obviously, it, it's it's designed for the Watcher to enjoy a very fast kind of change, otherwise he'd be sitting there for ages. But it's just very funny that he does it so quickly. It's like, okay, so how does he do this? Does he run into the TARDIS? Does he stop time? <laughs> <laughs> Does he get changed? Then come out and he's been like an hour or what? How's, how's it work? But it's just so funny and uh, even the music can't spoil it. The kind of bear in the big big blue house tell you how to think time music. But um, Well, yeah. it's, time is probably running at a slightly different rate inside the TARDIS, which is in a different dimension, isn't it? Of course. It's a montage. It's a montage. It's not Destiny of the Daleks. It's... Um, it, it doesn't offend. <laughs> Lee. I wish you'd yes. stay with the Viking look. That was very <laughs> the cool. Viking look was great. Lee cannot stand not to have explanations spelled out in giant fish letters for him on screen. I, I don't mind. I love I love just having no explanations sometimes. But in my head, I will always make up something rubbish, some story. I should be a Star Trek fan, really. Just before the show, um, or show... Is this a show? Yeah, it's a show now. I suppose it is. <laughs> um, Lee asked me, you know, at what point did um, uh, a Croton and Metal Mickey have a love child in the form of <laughs> Professor Kettlewell's robot? And he just, just couldn't work it out. I couldn't work it out. It's true. Isn't Professor Kettlewell the most mad mad scientist or mad looking mad scientist? Oh, yeah. Ever in absolutely yeah. the history of the show. It's well, he, doesn't he come from the same kind of boffins uh, as the uh, Time Warrior as well? Because they're all a bit mad, weren't they? The ones that are getting... He's straight up Michael Benton's potty time, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> 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 it's brilliant, though. And you, mm. get away, and this is, you get away with it this, in this period. Yeah. I want a glove the puppet. Can, of... can somebody make a glove puppet of him? That would be great. A Professor Kettlewell glove puppet. <laughs> There was a character in Mummy on the Orient Express, one of the background artists, who little, looked a little bit like Einstein. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking he's uh. he's a tribute to Kettlewell, that one. <laughs> oh, um, do, you, do you know who apparently was uh, first choice to play Jellicoe? Mr. Jellicoe, who was Miss Winter's assistant. The kind of, I mean, he varied, uh, but he was her kind of um, right-hand man, the, the one that Sarah thought was the director yeah. when she turned up. Colin Baker? Apparently, really? was first choice wow. to play Jellicoe. There you go. Oh, can you imagine? No. Yeah. Ah. Much younger version. Mm. Okay. Mm. Shall we move on to the next story, the story that came in third? Because mm. I think this is one for which we're all going to have a lot of affection. I don't even need to give you a hint here, do I? You know, given the two we've done and the two that are going to come top, you know what story this is, don't you? Is this Revenge and of the Cybermen? Yes, of course it is. Yeah. 
Mark Whiteley, who voted it second after Genesis of the Daleks, says, Revenge was one of my first VHSs. I must have watched it a million times. Nostalgia rules this vote for me. Justin Watson says, The only duff one of the five is Revenge of the Cybermen, mainly because it all looked so awkward, in my opinion. Miles Northcott says, Doctor Who does Wookie Hull. Actually, Wookie Hull nearly did Sarah Jane, as poor old Liz nearly drowned. Yes, what a true. season, he says, after Tom Baker's accident in Sontaran experiment. Vaguely Canadian Cybermen, but they looked fantastic. <laughs> he doesn't say they looked excellent. And despite a slightly silly plot, this is a terrific romp and the music was magnificent. I got a couple more comments, but I'll come to them afterwards. This might this, this, this might be the point about you know I mentioned earlier that this season contained my single most exciting moment. Oh, go on. That man. moment was the end of episode six of Genesis of the Daleks. This is in an age where you didn't know what was coming until you got the Radio Times for the next week. And of course, shown on a Saturday, so you wouldn't, you know, in a one episode, you wouldn't have that. But Genesis of the Daleks ends, the Doctor, Harry, and Sarah are spinning around. They're off, hanging on at the time ring. They're going back to the Ark, as far as we're concerned. And uh, then the voiceover comes on and says, Doctor Who returns next week in a new adventure, Revenge of the Cybermen. And oh. I just went. Wow! It's, again, twelve years old, and I was—I I hit the ceiling. I, it was—it uh, just made such an impact. <laughs> it might have well have been a cliffhanger, or whatever. Um, that was but, your earth shock moment. Well, I was because I was—I was really a child. You know, I was when I was a, a child. My Patrick Troughton, Jamie, and Zoe, particularly, and the Cybermen were, but but particularly Second Doctor, Jamie and the Cybermen, for me, were Doctor Who. And they hadn't been back, apart from a brief flash of a cyberhead in um, Carnival of Monsters. They, they hadn't turned up at all in the Pertwee years. So, um, so Andrew, you're, and you are a... They're yeah, back. Hmm? No, so just you're you're such back, a big... Yeah. You were a really big, big Cyberman fan then, obviously, from the childhood. Yes. Ha, hmm. Give us your opinion on the new ones. The kind of the last Variable. design. Variable. I love, I love, I love the latest design. I just wish they get rid of the the um, the stompy, steampunk kind of sound effect that goes with them. Um, mm. I thought the opportunity was there to get rid of that in Nightmare and Silver. To be honest with you, um, I, th- yeah. I think it kind of detracts from it. Um, and I like it. I like it too them. when the Cybermen are their own masters and making their own plans. Um, uh, but it, you know, it, it it's been variable. I, th- I think my favourite Sideman story out of uh, all of New Who is uh, Closing Time, where I think, again, it's a, in, in total, fairly, you know, there's a lot of humour in that story, but actually, I think the Sidemen and that are the scariest they've been. And then, very, right. very close by that, actually, is Dark Water and Death in Heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, really like what was done with them there. I like the Flying Sidemen, although some people mm-hmm. didn't, but again, I love those those two episodes. No, I thought the Flying Sidemen um, mm-hmm. worked. Mm-hmm. And they it made, them, it made them actually genuinely quite scary. You know that they can come and attack a plane was a brilliant idea. Yeah, and I like the idea. We're getting back to the idea that these are actually bodies within cyber casings. Yeah, and it's not yeah. just the brain that's been put into a machine. Um, uh, well, it always mm-hmm. bothered me in Rise of the Cybermen, or probably the Age of Steel, actually, where you open up the front of the Cyberman thing and you've got this sort of white stuff that looks like pulped paper or something. Hmm. I never really understood what the point of that was. But yeah, getting back to skeletons in metal suits is yeah, it brings hmm. back the it brings back that sort of body horror element thing. 
And I would also like to see mm. the new ones echo the old ones where they don't all walk in unison. Um, so you've yes. still got mm. the element of they are the same. They are the same beast. They're the same design. They're the same kind of make as each that, other. But they do still have a little element of their of the personality of the people that they, you know, they. That, that's the ubiquitous thing in the new series, though. That all your monsters they all walk the same way because we've got mm. a choreographer who does a really mm. good job. But there's oh, this yeah, thing: yeah, yeah. the scarecrows, Cybermen, whatever, uh, Clockwork Men, whatever. They all walk the same way. Kind of loses the personality a bit. It does. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, it's, it's the walking at the same time. It's the militaristic have to be exactly the same because they are computers. You know, delete, delete, all this sort of thing. I mean, it'd be mm. just nicer to, I don't know. I mean, you've got a, you had a cyber brig and Danny, Danny Cyberman, so that was quite good. But just having it, them not was, moving it, at the same time. It was okay in the Russell T. Davis stories where he was yeah. using the Cyberman as a commentary on things like computers mm. and you know, tablets and mobile phones and all that kind of stuff, technology. But now that Stephen Moffat's gone and done something else with them, mm. and I was going to bring this up next week's episode, but I might as well bring it up now since you brought it up. People said that the Cybermen have kind of lost that body horror thing and that, you know, the sort of the original reason for the Cybermen has been completely lost. And well, the reason why the original reason for the Cybermen has been completely lost is because replacement body parts are a bit passe these days. And Russell T. Davis was looking for something else to do with them and latched onto the technology thing and the upgrading thing. But I think what Stephen Moffat's done with... Uh, now, this was the uh, controversial thing in Dark Water. But the thing that Stephen Moffat did with the Don't Cremate Me and this whole, you've got the brains uploaded to the nether sphere, ready to be downloaded back into the bodies once they've been converted into Cybermen. I think what he's done there is, in a really sort of clever 21st century way, he's harked back to the original thing that made the Cybermen scary in the 10th planet. Mm -hmm. There's also the loss of yeah. free will as well. I mean, that's the big thing as well. The, the, the thought of being taken over as a Cyberman, not being yourself anymore. Hmm. That's, that's yes, and that's one of the clever down. things. That's one of the clever things that Moffat did in the two-part finale as well. Is mm. the, with the whole um, whether Danny presses delete on his emotions at the end of that first episode. That was uh, like actually physicalizing something that's only ever been like uh, something that you've a, a philosophy in the Cybermen stories previously, and probably something that we've missed. We've never actually seen the moment where you lose your emotions to become a Cyberman, not really, truly. And there's Stephen Moffat making it one of the central parts of that episode. It's brilliant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll tell you one thing, though, is that they, they need to bring the old uh, allergy back. <laughs> no, that was ridiculous. <laughs> and that brings us back to Revenge of the Cybermen, which is what we're supposed to be talking about. I tell you the really good thing this story does, and people have all sorts of problems with this story, and I've got to say, I don't think anybody sitting around this podcast had any trouble with this, because it's brilliant, it's beautiful, there's so many different things going on, but they all seem to serve one another really well. The Cybermats are great, and then in the second half of the story where it's Cybermen on Voga, that's brilliant, why wouldn't it be coming to that? But the thing that really gets me is the first half of the story, you've got two episodes on the space station leading up to the appearance of the Cybermen where they attack and the bit where they burst through the doors and walk through the doors, shooting people dead 
and standing over the doctor lying on the floor even in the omnibus version on the vhs i thought that was one of the great moments in doctor who yeah it's only halfway through the story and all hope is already lost when do you get that with the cybermen yeah especially these days and this is despite the fact that in the story and this is probably the first time this happens you've got a doctor who monster that you feel are on their uppers that they've lost Mm. and this is a remnant this is a um you, you know the, the the shaggy end of the the uh, uh, the best of the assignment. They're, they're really on the uppers and um, done the strike back. There's very few of them, but there's still there's very. And actually, that's probably when Doctor Who monsters were best when there's one yeah. or just a few of them, uh, but they desperate. still dominate the space, especially a confined space. Mm. This they're desperate. Mm. It makes them more dangerous. Yeah. It's the same thing. I agree with you, Andrew. I think they work really well in closing time because you see very little of them and because mm. when you do, they're so desperate, they're really dangerous. Yes. Yeah. And it's the same thing here, absolutely. And they're also behaving a, like a is... race, aren't they? Like a species. A species, mm. yeah. That, that's that's kind of been lost in some respects, but it can come back. It can come back. Yeah. Yeah, again, they're following their own agenda, I think, is, is one thing in this story. Um, this, is, this is the first story, isn't it, where uh, their, their susceptibility to gold is mentioned, yes. isn't it? With, you know, defeated by the glitter gun. <laughs> this was... <coughs> mm, very, this se- was very, 70s, very 70s. Yeah, this is Robert Holmes saying, mm. I've been saddled with a Cyberman story, which I don't really want to do. And he mm. took Jerry Davis's script and threw it out the window and rewrote it entirely from scratch. And, yeah... It's Robert Holmes who's responsible for the allergy to gold. And to be honest, it works fine in this story because I know they call it the glitter gun, but actually that's not a bad concept. Something that's really rare on Earth Mm. that might be quite common on another planet somewhere else that is sort of this deadly anathema to this species. It's quite an interesting concept. The trouble is when you put a bit of gold in a catapult and start shooting gold coins at Cybermen Mm. in a warehouse then it becomes silly I I can kind of relate to it because if they ever found a planet made of coconut I'd be in the same position (laughs) yeah (laughs) but you know what I mean okay the the, um, catapulting gold into the chest units of the Cybermen is like oh that's ridiculous but actually if you think about it technically um, you know things would short out bits of metal touching bits of metal you know, if you get a fuse and and put a bit of um, tin foil in it, you know it's it's going to it's going to conduct a lot of en- electricity. But then you then put a piece of wire on it against something else, it'll short out and blow up. So all I see is it's gold is quite conductive material. It's hitting chest plates and exploding Cybermen. It's not, but you know, yeah, you know, it's an allergy thing, isn't it? That's such a bizarre thing to add into this episode where you have an entire comet or. or Bloomin' Moon or whatever it is, made of gold. It's like... <laughs> well, you've kind of said it there. This is what Robert Holmes did. He took, he took something that humans and by humans, I'm talking about the audience watching at home, the sort of general population, would understand an allergy. And then he kind of rewrites it for the machine creatures, so it's an allergy to gold. I mean, what could be more silly but an allergy to gold? But the Cybermen famously are the silver monster so what else would they have an allergy to apart from gold? It just it makes Rust. it's ridiculous. It's ridiculously illogical, and yet at the same time, it makes perfect sense. 
And you touched on something else as well. We've seen, again, they didn't want the script, but Philip Hinchcliffe didn't want any returning monsters. He didn't want Daleks. He didn't want Cybermen. He got them both. And then, they get, again, they turn around these ideas and uh, that, you know, into something that, that um, is well-remembered. Obviously, Genesis of the Daleks, more so than Revenge. But I, 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 I rate it highly. Um, again, part of it, again, it's just... You, you know, you look at it now, but you look at you, you think of how you reacted to it back then as a twelve-year-old, as I say, and um, it ju it just pushed all the buttons for me. Just apart that, apart from when the beacon was going to crash into yeah, Volga, I just and you had that to bring revolving that, that revolving cylinder. <laughs> Again, even as a twelve-year-old, I, I it was painful to watch because it was clearly a revolving cylinder with that same little knobbly bit <laughs> yeah. just came round like, every two seconds um, but uh, when I bought the VHS of this I looked mm. at that bit and I just my head in my hands and I thought oh my god but then you know what once you get over the shock mm. of seeing it the next time you watch it you know it's going to be there and you just enjoy the rest of the story yeah, yeah. I've got to tell you the Cybermats in this I found them terrifying mm. yes the idea, because it took that, it took the thing that happened in the moon base with the uh, the disease mm. and the sort of lines across your face, and then it took the Cybermats out of Tomb of the Cybermen, and it put the two of them together, and it turned them into something that was more terrifying than either of those things had mm. been. And they were both pretty scary the first time around. No, spreading that plague, you know, again, kind of revisiting the effect we had in the Green Death with the lines on the face. Mm. Um, Got some really good actors in this as well. You were David Collins, but Ronald Lee Hunt. Yes. And who was Ron Ronald Lee Hunt singing? I want to say something like William Marlowe. Um, oh, yeah, William Marlowe, yeah. Yeah, yeah. From The Gentle Touch. Um, mm. uh, oh, and from really, The really Mind of Evil as well, isn't he? No, I don't think so. Was Oh, oh yes, yes, yes. He was one of the yes. prisoners. Yes, yes, of yes. course he was. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And you've got Michael um, Wisher and Christopher Robbie and people like that. Yeah, yeah. Kevin Stoney. Blimey, you've yes. You've got, yes, uh, Kevin Stoney again, is Kevin one of the Stoney Vogans. and Ronald Lee Hunt, back from the Patrick Troughton days, the invasion, because another Sideman story, and um, uh, the Seeds of Death for uh, Ronald Lee Hunt. Um, all this stuff. But again, at the time, was doing, uh, Ronald Lee Hunt at the time was doing a show called The Three Wheelers that uh, was a very big kids' show. Um, it all adds to it. it. All adds to it. The um, we're always going on about how we seem to pick out things which relate to the annuals. I think the Vogons are straight out of an annual. Yeah, as far as the design, the straight the out of Dad's army. They, they all look like Private Godfrey. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, stop me last time I watched it. Yeah. When the Weetabix cards <laughs> turned up, the second edition of the Weetabix cards with the Vogons on, they look great. Yeah, they're a great design. Yeah, I think the they are. Yeah, I. Uh, they've kind of they've got that old man thing going. But if a whole species looks like old men, and they're obviously not all old men, then that makes them into something truly slightly odd. They're a little <laughs> bit like the sensorites in that respect. The sensorites looked great. The story itself might not be great, but the sensorites looked great, and they've got this kind of. It's one of those things, if you first see a Sensorite or you first see a Vogan when you're a kid, that kind of sticks in the memory and mm. you carry that. Mm. 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 
I got a couple more messages about this one, and it's nearly ten o'clock, which is my uh, which is my uh, bedtime. So we'll move on to the next story after I've read these two messages. Suffice it to say, I think we've had a lot of love for Revenge of the Cybermen. Definitely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I love that story. Hang on, wait, wait, Dylan... wait, 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 wait. Yeah, before yeah. you carry on, when you said that, Steady. that, uh, yeah, when you said that, not me, but Simon did a face. Did a face. Did I don't know whether yeah, he's I, as enamoured with it as all of us. I struggled with it when I was watching it earlier. I kept falling asleep. Didn't hold my attention. That's because you were tired. Yeah, probably. Okay. Because you're not twelve. It's a great story, Simon. Yeah. <laughs> I was. I oh, think I was six so or seven. Very drawn out. But anyway, yeah. Time for okay. a bit of bullying, I think. <laughs> oh, wait till we get to Genesis of the Daleks. I'm talking <laughs> okay. about drawn out. Just kidding. Dylan Deadline Rees says, I first got into Doctor Who when I was six with the broadcast of the first episode of Battlefield. I was instantly hooked, and when the season was over, I begged my uncle to get me a Doctor Who video for Christmas. When Christmas arrived, he presented me with Revenge of the Cybermen on video. Much to my distress, the titles were all wrong, and someone had done something awful to the music. Where was all the purple neon flying asteroids and the Doctor's silver face? Even worse, the Doctor wasn't my Doctor. It was some idiot in a long scarf. And where the hell was Ace? It took approximately (laughs) ten minutes. It took approximately ten minutes before I had forgotten all this. The Cybermats and the disease they carried absolutely terrified me. I found Tom Baker mesmerising, especially when being used as a human bomb. And I truly believed I was watching a space station in the far future and an alien society. Revenge gets a bit of a raw deal these days, but from a six-year-old's perspective, it was everything I wanted Doctor Who to be and didn't know it. Although I wish someone had warned me that there were other Doctors and other companions. While season 26 got me into Doctor Who, Revenge made me a fan. 10 out of 10, and screw you, Genesis. <laughs> At one moment I did like... No, no, that's, that's, saying, that's like me saying that I didn't like any of it. I did, I did. Um, but there's a, there's a really good moment where uh, Harry and Sarah Jane are hiding behind a rock and he says, oh, where you go, girl, old girl, and go and do something or else. And I half expected him to smack her on the arse. Yeah. Simon, you've got a whole episode of The Doctor, Sarah, Sarah Jane Smith and Harry Sullivan walking around and is not a deserted space station, a space station littered with dead bodies. I like the bit where he stuck exciting. his arm. I put, he put his arm through the door and he said, "You left, <laughs> you left out onto the door, so I don't lose my arm." I thought I like that. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> again, there's a, there's, again one, of my, my, one of my favourite ever Tom Baker moments is again that moment when he nearly loses his arm. <laughs> And he gets it pulled out, and he he says thank you, Sarah. And then he just shoots this look at Harry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's also completely unscripted. It's even hard to describe, but it's just such a malevolent look. It's just some... he's he's so unforgiving, isn't he, with Harry? I mean, he, I think there's a moment yeah. where he shouts it out yeah. as loud as he can in Wookie Hole. Harry is an mm. idiot, or something like that. Imbecile. Yes. Imbecile. An imbecile. Harry yes. Is an imbecile. <laughs> Brilliant. Mm. Right, we're in the top two now. Uh, and here's the surprise. You know what came second? Go on. Well, would you like to guess? If it's a surprise, then it must be Genesis of the Daleks. It is. Mm. Which, which is a lie, because I've got a DVD with a... 
I've got a DVD with a sticker on the front of it that says it's the number one story ever. It is. As voted <laughs> yeah, for in Doctor Who magazine. Mm. There's now five stories with that quote on stickers on the front of it. Um, do you know what? Genesis of the Daleks is brilliant, but it is two episodes too long. And yet, if you took those two episodes out, it wouldn't be as brilliant because it wouldn't carry the import that it does. Figure that. Uh, I don't know if I agree with your reckoning there. <laughs> it's oh, a, go it's on a, then. It's um, a Terry Nation story, isn't it? So uh, right. you're going say, to have, no, I, you've got to have a quest in it somewhere. F- first thing to say, I, 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 like, I like it a lot. Um, but um, <laughs> at the time, <laughs> that that, wasn't that from? Jim Carrey? Wasn't it? I like it a lot. I don't know. I'm trying to know it comes from. I can't think. But um, Jim Carrey, <laughs> like it a lot, sir. Very nice. Um, but um, at the time, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. You Not, didn't like I it. I didn't like it. Not enough Daleks. Too many people standing around chatting to each other. Too yeah. many people chatting. There's Daleks in the room, not getting a word in. Because there's uh, some mad scientist um, who, who looks like Jellicle without the hair, sat in a chair, <laughs> um, uh, ranting on to his Nazi uh, bedfellows. Um, and a lot of escaping and going backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. Um, there is a lot of padding in this. And actually, episode one's got a load. In the 70-minute um, episode, which I know really well, I used to... Um, I started from the next series. I started... Um, recording off air and writing my own novelizations, if you like, of oh, stories yeah, yeah. from about Pyramids of Mars. And I also did the the, uh, the omnibus of this, uh, which is seventy minutes long. Um, so obviously quite a bit cut out, uh, and that really does do the story a favour. And then when I came back to watching the whole six episodes in VHS, it, it had the stuff with the clams. It had the stuff when um, at, at the beginning when Harry and the Doctor are in the trench, the Calais Trench, and there's a gas attack, and they're taken into the trench. Uh, there's, a, there's something like 15 minutes of unnecessary story that gets ditched, and you don't mm. miss it. And, it. and instead of going into that first anteroom, where they have that first conversation with the Khalids, they go straight into, and then escaping, and then being caught again, they go straight from being caught in the trench to being with Guy Siner. Um, you know, straight that far into the episode. And you don't, you don't miss it. You really don't. Losing all the mm. stuff in there. Yeah. Yeah. Losing but my, the whole but character, my... pretty much. What do you mean? Uh, the, the stuff yeah. where they first capture Tom Baker and they're, they're talking yeah. about no, no tea, Harry, that one. And he's emptying uh, his pockets. That's the best yes. part of the all six, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but no, as a, as a, as a, as a youngster watching this, I just felt, and I'm actually, I'm no, I, I would say by the time I got my late, I, I was not really a great fan of the Daleks anyway. But for a Dalek story, that you, you kind of wanted more Dalek action going on, and there really wasn't enough. Uh, but I do ignore. No, it's, it is one of the top. It is one of the top stories. But for someone of that age at that time, and from what you expected from a Doctor Who story, as well. That's how I was like, and you didn't get this option then. It's, you know, you listen to podcasts now. People say, "What do you think? Of, what do you think of Death in Heaven?" I'm not sure. I need to watch it two or three more times. No, no, no. Back in that day, you watched it. You yeah. had an opinion, and that was it. You didn't get to go back and think again until no, ten years it later. Was originally, the it was originally called Genesis VHS, of right? Terror, wasn't it? Genesis of Terror, yes. or yeah. something like that. And so it didn't have the Daleks in the title, which is another interesting thing. 
because uh, obviously if you hadn't if you didn't know that would have been that earth shock moment again you'd have got a big surprise mm -hmm. but if it's called genesis of the daleks straight away you you know it's going to be a dalek episode so you, that must have got you quite excited then well it's terry nation <laughs> yeah well to, well to be honest we could have a discussion around the fact that i think actually the decision to hide the fact assignment the earth shock i think is one of gnc's worst decisions <laughs> Oh, really? as, as impactful as that was, I think if, again, just jumping ahead several years, but I think if Earthshock had been called something like Return of the Cybermen or, uh, you know, the, the, the Cybermen kill the dinosaurs or whatever, um, uh, you can there would have been, so, there would have been so much expectation. <laughs> there would have been so, it, it was great and it was a fantastic moment to see them as a fan, but actually I think you've had more bums and seats if you actually hear the Cybermen come back. But, Do you know what the mm, big problem it. with that, mm. with that cliffhanger in Earthshock is? It doesn't come out of the story. If the reveal of the Cybermen had been a natural part of the story, this is the bit where the Doctor stumbles on the spaceship with the Cybermen in it, whatever. Mm. But it's not. It's, oh, we've got to the end of 25 minutes. Quick, just shove a shot of the Cybermen up before the end credits roll. It doesn't, it just feels like it's been shoved in because the credits are about to roll. It's not a natural part of the story. It's not a natural development. I don't, in the plot. I don't know. Like, it, it's a reveal of who's actually behind it, and it works yeah, because you it's assignment. What you have, oh God! No, it, it titles. No, I want to know more. You know. No, but, yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah. what I mean is, you need to find that out when the Doctor does. If you don't know that from the start, you need to find it out when the Doctor does. Like, just for example, Planet of the Daleks. When. You know, you know the Daleks are in it. Everybody knows the Daleks are in it. But the reveal comes at the point where the Doctor comes into contact with his first Dalek. Mm. And in Genesis, mm. it's Sarah Jane seeing a Dalek being unveiled in that bunker at the end yeah. of the first episode. You need that contact. So you need on, to be just, either with just, a... remind, just remind me very mm. quickly. The end of Earthshock was them standing around a ball with the Doctor's face in it. Is that right or something? Yes. Oh, right. Yeah, you're right. It does need to be a reaction shot of a of a character that we're we we're familiar with. I think that was yeah. It's a great. I thought it was a great idea. I I think I have to disagree with Andrew. I quite like the idea of having it secret and then you get the surprise. I do understand. As a fan, you do. View, but ca yeah, I was going to no, say the casual viewer probably wouldn't give a monkeys. But I tell you, but, there's uh, also the th there's also the thing. I mean, we knew, and especially with the Terranation story, but with others as well, you knew in a Dalek story. Um, as much as you might want the Dalek, episode one, you're not going to see a Dalek until just before the sting of the end It's titles. a tease, isn't it? And there's it's that thing, tease. but it's like, and there's that great thing. I mean, in, I mean, Genesis, if you like, if you call Genesis a terror, you've still got a Time Lord, unless you change that opening scene, saying you're here because this is the planet yeah. of the Daleks and we want you to stop them or affect their development or learn something about them. Off you go. Um, Destiny of the Daleks, I remember as well. Particularly, you've got this. You, you you've got something going on. You know there are Daleks around somewhere, and you don't know what part they play in it. And because you know that, and the characters don't, it's that, it actually builds up the tension. You've also got a big, that big clue. Davros comes in the room and says, "How do you like my skirt?" Yeah, but that's right at the oh, end no, as well. Yeah, that's right. At well, the that's end fair as well. enough. Mm. But that works in the same way as something like Columbo works, where you know who the murderer is, but you have to watch Columbo. Finding his way through the clues to get there. But it's intriguing yeah. as well, isn't it? Mm, when you see yeah. Davros and hang on, this bottom half's a darling. And yeah. I remember, I mean, look at how you how, how we were looking at it then. Is we just had Daleks and spaceships turning up and killing people, really? And this was a proper and again in the context of the, the Hinchcliffe Holmes era, this was very dark. I mean, the first few minutes of that, 
David Maloney, the director, has said he actually thinks it went too far with a slow motion soldiers shooting each other with machine yeah. guns, so bullets, you know, people in gas masks, slow motion being shot, shot down. Barry Letts wouldn't have stood for that for one minute. Uh, it, it's great telly, it works really well, but that's a, you know, this is where the, the program is changing in this, se this season. It's becoming, it's reaching for a, a more grown up audience. Um, I mean, what it what it is. I mean, you. St I think you said earlier, Andrew, didn't you, that um, you, you felt like, oh, should I be watching this? This is this is for adults, and you know, the kids are saying that about Peter Capaldi's um, season. You know, that there are children. I know. I, I know. Well, this feels like yeah. this feels like a grown. That was in an email, Lee. That was in an email. Oh. I was in an email. Okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah. but uh, that's that's what I'm. Yeah, I mean, it yeah, but that's like what makes it the same thing. That makes it really exciting for kids, thinking, mm. is this something I should be watching? Oh, yeah, and I loved it. Uh, I mean, mm. that, that sort of thing, I loved it at, at the time, you know. Um, but, it, but it was darker. It was a definite shift in, in what the show was doing, and the Nazi references and everything else were quite mm. overt. But um, what Hinchcliffe said, wasn't it? He said, we've got the 10-year-olds, let's see if we can't get the 14-year-olds as well. I was going to say the success is mm. as much to the execution as the content of the story, isn't it? It's it's just everything in there. All the elements are great. You know, Davros, Davros is great. Mm. Nida is great. Um, just the design work, the way it's filmed, everything. And that's not even looking at the story. It's just all the elements are just brilliant. brilliant. And actors who are, t who are really putting their heart and soul into it. Dennis Chinnery, Peter Miles, Michael Wisher. All of those, you know, um, all, all, you know, all the way through. You got some really funny. Uh, Stephen Yardley's in there. Well, this is know. what this is what I think deceives people about Genesis of the Daleks. They know Robert Holmes's history of rewriting other stuff, things like mm. Ark in Space and Pyramids of Mars and the Brain of Morbius and all sorts of other things. And they look at Genesis of the Daleks and they're deceived into thinking that Robert Holmes has rewritten it because. David Maloney's got these performances out of the actors, but if you actually look at the dialogue, it's Terry Nation all the way. Yeah, and one thing's interesting, I mean, the story that Barry Letts and Terrence Dix tell is that Terry Nation submitted a storyline that was just too similar to Death of the Daleks and Planet of the Daleks, and then and Barry Letts came up with the idea of the, the genesis of the Dalek, and he actually used that phrase. Mm. Um, and Terry Nation really liked the idea and went with it. The thing is, and something that uh, only really came home to me, Yesterday, really, when I found I, I I tweeted about it actually that at the time that the genesis of the Daleks, the last episode was finishing, the first episode of Terry Nation's Survivors was just about to be broadcast. So he would have been working on both of those at the same time. And Survivors, a really really dark piece of post-apocalyptic television, and I yeah. wouldn't be surprised at all if that hadn't bled into the script for Genesis of the Daleks. Yes. In that case, that makes sense uh, because the dialogue, I think, is a lot better. Uh, it's the best dialogue he's ever written, isn't it, for Doctor Who, if you think about it. There's some scenes between, obviously, uh, the Doctor and, and Davros, which are just, you know, heart-thumpingly good. They're brilliant bits of dialogue and brilliantly acted. And I, su I suppose when he's working on Survivors, he's had to do a lot more kind of dialogue. It's a great series, isn't it? And it's dark, so... Maybe, but I think Terry Nation yeah. was always kind of good at, um, I don't know, pr producing situations where you could empath, even in a fantastic situation, you could empathise yeah. to like the, the, the human position, the human dilemmas that yeah, people were yeah. put in. Definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm, I think yeah. I think Death to the Daleks and Planet of the Daleks are hugely underrated stories because mm. 
you can you can follow the human story through and each of the characters is sufficiently different enough that you can follow each of their developments through the story and okay mm. some of them might be a little bit cliched but there's no uh, there's nothing wrong with having a, a bit of a cliche in what is still essentially a children's story in order to get the children through and to it sounds a bit disingenuous or a bit patronising to say teach them a lesson, but you learn something from these stories about character. Yes, and I, th I think, and, and there are other Doctor Who stories like it. Actually, as a young child, you're watching this, and you actually you, you do you do pick up messages that you carry forward in life. Mm. You know, at the risk of overstating it, but I, I really believe that. You know. Right, should we get into a few emails about, a few short messages about this? Miles Northcott said the best portrayal of Davros and so many perfect and quotable moments. And of course, the ultimate precursor to the Time War. There's timey-wimey for you. <coughs> Weird Bean says, finding and buying this DVD in Asda a long time ago was the spark that brought me back to Doctor Who. Tristan Alfaro, oh, it's Tristan, guys. You know what that means, don't you? <laughs> Tristan, who voted Genesis of the Daleks second, says Genesis would probably be in first place if it wasn't a six-parter that's some flabby padding. And if you couldn't walk between the two domes, which have apparently been at war for a thousand years and are in walking distance of each other. Good point. Bonus, <laughs> bonus point. Bon I can't do it now. Bonus points for the giant clam, though. Well, this is it. I mean, like I said, Terry Nation has to put a quest in. You know, when we had the original Dalek episode, there you had to walk through a, a, a valley and, and uh, an underground passage and swing from... When a... you say a quest, do you mean a journey? Uh, well, a quest, journey, same thing. I prefer quest. A quest. <laughs> quest sounds good, doesn't it? You know, we had quests on Keys mm. and Marinus as well, but do you know what I mean? It's a journey. You've got to have a Wasn't journey. much of a so... quest getting into the Thal Dome, though, was it? <laughs> Ever would... You know, a guy <laughs> sign up. Do you, do you know... <laughs> our friend might be there. Do you know a way get... Well, I might know a way. Okay, here you go. Go through this tunnel. <laughs> go up through the floor... Not only are you in the Thal Dome, you're right next to the cabinet mm. building and you that, can put your ear up to the ventilation shaft in the door and find out all their plans. Exactly. That Over was a the thousand only... years and no one ever thought to do <laughs> that. <laughs> that is the bit. That is the bit that I sussed out the first time I ever watched it and thought, why, yeah. why, they, you know, why don't they just invade them through the ventilation shafts? I've watched Neighbours. But then you're, la you know, you're laughing. Easily. You're laughing at that, and then I, I remember the, the the scene of the Daleks going through the Thal city, as as minimalist as it is, proper scaring me, yeah, really yeah, properly yeah. scaring me. Again, part of the way it's acted, and, and and short again with the low levels. They did the low levels of the Daleks and brought the lightning down, and That's oh, right. you know, David Maloney gets the, the design. David Maloney gets the designers to put ceilings on the set so yes. they can put the cameras down on the floor. Which is, you know, which mm. is absolutely what you need when you're shooting Daleks. Yeah. Because the thing about Daleks is, well, well, I've said this many times, but I don't think I've ever said it on the podcast. If you shoot from normal head height, you're showing things the way human beings see them. And there's nothing remotely unsettling about that. Mm. You shoot from low down on the ground. Uh, in your day-to-day -day life, how many times during the course of a day do you see the things around you from low down on the ground? You never do. So putting the camera down low automatically becomes unsettling. Then you throw something like a Dalek into the shot and you've got it made. Yeah. My terrifying moment in Genesis of the Daleks, though, is the scene in episode one with the mine. 
Oh yeah. I just, That's not time. how mines work. <laughs> no, but my god, I was These terrified. Alien mines. <laughs> I was uh, I was absolutely certain that Harry was going to get blown up or Sarah or the doctor or somebody. Uh, and I tell you what, going back to the subject of the edited version, the 70 minute omnibus or however long it was, the 40 minute LP. Oh yes. That took even Ooh, yes. more out of the story, yes. and yet it still made sense. Yeah, it yeah. does have the narration to get you from one scene to another, though. Um, Dylan Deadline Reese says everybody loves it. I can take it or leave it. Episodes one and six are brilliant, but I find it drags in the middle. It's bleak, dark, and just a little bit dull. However, it's still miles ahead of plenty of other stories. Uh, and Christopher Bryant finally says, obviously in many ways one of the all-time greats, but every episode contains some pointless runaround sequence or other. The Thals have no personality whatsoever, and the plot doesn't always make sense. Obviously, I still love it. There you go. I don't think, episode, I think everybody episode, agrees. You, that could be episode 12 in a nutshell. <laughs> uh, sorry, season 12 in a nutshell. Yeah. I think... Well, I think this is, I think he's, yeah, he's summed it up in a nutshell. Mm. Uh, it doesn't make any sense, but it's still brilliant. Mm. Mm. Right. Matt Barber says, The arc in space is such a paradigm shift in the style of the series that it is difficult to think of it straying far from anybody's all-time top ten. Miles Northcott says, Tom truly arrives here and his relationship with Liz and Ian clicks straight away. Still the best TARDIS team ever. Graham Leggett says, I found Ark in Space scary at the time and didn't actually watch Doctor Who for years, although I devoured the target novelizations of the early Fourth Doctor stories from my local library. And Christopher Bryant says, Close to Doctor Who perfection, from its atmospheric, character-strapped opening installment through to its explosive finale via Bobble Wrap, Rogin and Elizabeth Sladen in the air duct, the true beginning of the Tom Baker era. And this is the shock... Ark in Space was voted above Genesis of the Daleks. Do we think it deserves to be there? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I love Genesis of the Daleks. I, I would say that's one of my all-time classic favourites. But Ark in Space, there's just something about it that I cannot help myself. When I put it on, even if it's just for a couple of minutes, I've got to watch the whole thing from the start <laughs> to the end. So I just try not to put it on. It's It's compelling. The whole thing is just brilliant. It's a great science fiction idea and a great science fiction story. And which I don't necessarily think was done um, before um, Ark in Space. You know, the kind of body horror the, that something laying a seed inside you, that sort of thing. And an alien came. You know what helps, I think, later. is it's, it's very brilliant, simple. Brilliant. It's a very yeah, simple it concept. You, you've got these insect-like aliens who are uh, even looking to infest the Ark, uh, implant the human bodies, replicate... Um, uh, and, and take over. It's very, very simple. There's some silly stuff in this as well, but to be honest, the silly st has got nothing to do with the plot. The, the, the logicalities are things like, at the end, why, why do they take the teleport down to Earth when they could take the TARDIS? Why is the Wirren actually in a cupboard? Uh, little things like that. They've got nothing actually to do with the main plot. No. Um, at the time, again, at the time, I I didn't really rate this too much because I it looked again as my younger self. I just thought it was it looked kind of sterile to me and too white and sterile and again a lot of talk. But but actually, that's one of the strengths of it. I mean, it's basically just our three leads in the in the uh, in, in the first episode. 
uh, carrying it between themselves mm. and, and just actually, do, doing fantastic yeah. I don't actually remember a lot about it from watching it when it was first on, um, but it, it was one of the early DVD releases, wasn't it? Because I think it's one of the, yeah, possibly one of the first ones I bought, and so it was a completely Something fresh it, thing. It's an early VHS release, I think. Yeah. Oh, was it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Maybe early VHS it. and early DVD. Yeah. Yeah. So I watched it with no expectation, and I really, really loved it. It was completely fresh experience there was no preconceptions at all didn't know a lot about the Wirren at all from reading magazines or books or anything like that never read the target novel so it was it was a really really lovely surprise for me which is probably why I voted it top as well it's a an Ian Marta target novel yes yeah I strongly recommend it strongly yeah. recommend it it's a really, really the original read. the original cover is just beautiful <laughs> oh it's an Achilles isn't it mm. It's oh a yeah, yellow it's got a border. Cover, yeah. yeah, it's got a great cover mm. to it. But again, and the bubble you know, wrap thing. People go on about the bubble wrap, but to be honest, yeah. that's relevant, yeah. you know. And it and it even still holds up now. I mean, you you know what it is, but it but it still holds up and it's well shot. Um, the only thing it's a little unfortunate is that scene that was edited out, and I think episode three was it where um, at the end where yeah. Noah threatens to, to well says gives Vira the gun out and says kill uh, kill me. You know, it's decided uh, Philip Hinchcliffe referred it up to the head of serials. He said, no, no, that's got to come out. So you've got this odd sequence where the Doctor and Vira are facing Noah in the corridor when he's half-transformed and suddenly his gun is on the floor and he's, the, the, the bulkhead has come down and you don't know what's happened. Yeah. So that's the, but yeah, right. they, they, they didn't have the coverage to do anything else with it. No. In fact, that edit is... Uh... Not uh, well. The, I'm just reminded of the edit in Robot of Sherwood, where they left a line of dialogue in that refers back to what's just mm. happened. Mm. Why didn't they just edit that line of dialogue out as well? But never mind. Well, I, 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 I didn't notice anything there at the, at the, at the time, Robert of Sherwood. But no, it's, it, you notice it, it, it once you know, a little bit I think. Yeah. Out of space. Um, it really looks. It yeah, looks it really does. Odd. But you know mm. what? When you watch that and you don't know there's an edit there, you just see that and it's slightly freaky and there are so many other freaky things going on in that story, it kind of mm. adds to the atmosphere a bit. Mm-hmm. Are we talking about Robot again? Robot Sherwood? No, we're talking about Ark in Space now. <laughs> Sorry, I only drifted away briefly. Especially with Ark in Space, though, you, you've, got a, you've got a really good, and it could have been a really silly, alien... Uh, effects, you know, an alien costume, if you like, um, including the grubs, which again, were, were, mm. you know, basically Stuart fell wrapped in in um, bubble wrap. But again, his underside was, was done really well. That pink underside when he's rearing up oh, yeah. is, is done really well. But alongside human possession, and it was a human possession side that Philip Hinchcliffe actually decided that he really liked, and they could have some mileage out of, and they really milked that over the next two years very, very effectively. Um, but I think, yeah, the Wirren are quite something. They were in that ex- exhibition at uh, Blackpool as well, actually. And oh, I think it's... The designs, the monster designs in season sort of 12, 13 and 14 are just mm. outstanding, aren't they? Even and the designs generally. Roger Murray Leach again was yeah, the designer for yeah. this, wasn't he? There's some really, really clever stuff. It's, in a small studio. Uh, Ark in Space is, 
I mean, it's great all the way through from episode one to four, but episode one is one of those classics. Mm. The silence in the library harkens back to, really. You land in a place that probably shouldn't be deserted and is, and for the first quarter of the story, you've just got the regular cast walking mm. around trying to work out what's going on. Mm. And that really... You know, this is my favourite type of Doctor Who story. I don't like to have a... Cutaways in the first episode. In fact, I think you should see everything from the perspective of either the Doctor or the Companion. You shouldn't see anything that those two don't see. It's like in Taxi Driver. In Taxi Driver, there is one scene in the entire film which isn't seen from Robert De Niro's perspective, and it sticks out like a sore thumb. I like that in my Doctor Who. I like to know what they know, when they know it, and not before. And the first episode of Ark in Space is probably the reason why I like my Doctor Who like that. It's nice to mix it up, though. It? Yeah. And I again, suppose, if you if you but... persevered with that, you'd finish up with all these episodes, all these stories that would start with protracted scenes in the TARDIS. When, um, <laughs> oh God, really... no! The first no, <laughs> no. The when the TARDIS door opens and they come out, that's yeah. where it should start. Yeah. No, I, t- I take your point. What I guess mm-hmm. I'm saying is my favourite stories are the stories that start like that. But, I mean, it, yeah. it, it's a yeah. mystery, isn't it? It, ra- it unravels slowly like a mystery, and you're trying to guess as the viewer as to what's going on. Um, and then when the mm. full reveal comes along that, you know, these insects are laying eggs in people and they want to take over the whole human race, and the whole human race are incapacitated. You know, they're just not moving. They're, they're frozen, so they're easy prey. You instantly mm. start thinking that oh, that's a terrifying thought that the whole of humanity or the whole of the human race could be just taken over because a grub gets in the works, um, and it's you know just from a very small yep. opening scene to this huge, massive cosmic kind of disaster. Mm. Uh, the point I was going to make about this story actually something else a, a big point with this is remember how quickly this was written, which is quite staggering. Mm. Um, Christopher Langley had had written his story Space Station. John Lucarotti uh, was commissioned uh, and came up with the Ark in Space, this idea that involved aliens called the Delk, or the Delf, was it the Delk? Who, there were two types. One were basically heads, and the others were bodies who did what the heads told them, but they were disembodied heads. And the, the plot was resolved, apparently, by the Doctor using a golf club to yeah. deposit it. And, a, and it was, you can, oh, that's as much as I ever want to know. Um, oh, come on, but there must be was, a cartoon uh, version of that somewhere. But... <laughs> well, there was an episode called Golf Ball, wasn't there? They were all called Something Ball, Puff Ball. Was yeah, Puff that's Ball it. John, Luca- yeah. John Lucarotti had written back in the day when all the episodes had, had uh, episode titles. So he submitted these <laughs> episodes with episode titles, and the first one was called Puff Ball. The last one was called Golf Ball. Um, and the other two had Ball at the end of it. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I, 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 as, as I imagine it, Phil Hinchcliffe has gone into a comatose state, having read these. <laughs> and uh, and John Lucarotti was off, and he, he lived well, abroad in, I want, was it Corsica, somewhere like that? Well, Philip Hunchcliffe walked into Robert Holmes's office with his scripts in his hand and said, look, we can't use this, it's just mm. a lot of balls. <laughs> Don't. Given that opportunity, <laughs> you'd think he would, Yes. But um, uh, yeah, but then he went ahead of serials and said, "My script, because you need permission for your script editor at the time to actually right, write yeah. the series." So he got permission, and I think it was two weeks. I think I think it was such, it was a ridiculously short period of time um, that that Robert Holmes came up with these. 
and it's amazing the quality of it. You know, maybe, maybe they should have done that every time. Look what happened with City of Death. I don't know. I think, I think when, thing, when but, people um, are under pressure and they have to write, bad, and they've, they've got a very short deadline. Uh, mm. It's amazing what people can come out with, actually. <laughs> we can just shove it down on the page, you know. But yeah. um, uh, and then maybe you know some some plot holes sneak mm. in. But but it's it's just fabulous. It it, it is absolutely fabulous, you know. Um, lovely. I, I I know people have said you know maybe it influenced Alien, which it definitely didn't, because Dana Bannon actually. Uh, was the guy who came up the story for Alien, but um, well, Dan O'Bannon nearly got sued by the people who produced it, The Terror from Beyond Space, in 1958, yeah. didn't mm-hmm. he? In fact, did he get sued by them? I have a feeling there was some kind of lawsuit, but maybe 20th Century Fox he, made it go away. He might have been, yeah, but uh, but it's it, you know it's, it is again getting back to it. It's a very it's a very simple story. Um, it's very similar to what became Alien in 1979, just just four years later. Um, the concept, but it's a fairly simple concept, but it's one that that, that really works. Yeah, yeah, I mean, if you're going to say Alien ripped off Ark in Space, you know, there are a good idea is a good idea. It yeah. doesn't necessarily mean you borrowed it from somebody else. If it's a simple mm. idea and it's a good idea, you're not going to be the only person who ever comes up with it. Yeah. It's- it's also the episode where Tom Baker, as a doctor, picks up picks up speed, takes us on our sp- first space flight, and you've got that lovely speech where he says about human race being indomitable and all that sort of thing. Mm. And, and you just think, you just think, oh my god, this is he's the best travelling companion ever. He's got the whole of time and space all of a sudden. He's got all of that again, and and this and is he's the got Rodney going to go there with. Yeah, and he's got Rodney Bennett doing a cracking job as a director. Hadn't done a special effects show before. Um, I think he directed stuff that Robert Holmes had uh, written before, and Robert Holmes uh, recommended him for Philip Hinchcliffe. So he's brought in uh, uh, and made made Centauri Experiment before this, but uh, just did a cracking job. Brought in cameras and cranes, got those high angles. Yeah, um, imagine but certainly the opening got... scenes. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Those opening scenes are great. Imagine if you got the script and it said, "Okay, we want the whole of humanity in kind of like uh, in fridges or whatever, <laughs> going, mm. you know, all all across. We want to see thousands of them." And you you must be panicking when you're thinking, "How am I going to do that?" So the their genius idea was to make it go upwards, uh, so you can yeah. build a very small set of of, of mm. you know real kind of. Um, uh, people that could walk out of the the cabinets and things, and then it just goes up and up and up. It's just a brilliant, brilliant idea and brilliant concept. Mm. And actually, this is you, you're right about it being a very simple story because it essentially is just an alien invasion uh, or based under siege, um, alien invasion of of the human race on a base which is under siege in space. So it's pretty mm. much ticking all the Doctor Who boxes right there. He is stereotypical Doctor Who, apart from the sort of taking over by laying your eggs inside the human body thing, which is what Robert Holmes adds on top, which mm. makes it into a really potent mix. Mm. Definitely. And it, it, and it has that very memorable scene towards the end where Tom Baker makes Liz Slade and go through the air duct, and when she starts oh, to struggle, so he good. forces her on. Which reminds me ever so slightly of the scene where Peter Capaldi leaves Jenna Coleman mm. in the basement filled with the robots at the end of Deep Breath and leaves her by herself, mm-hmm. which kind of brings us full circle. 
Andrew. Hmm. Did you like that? Oh, God. <laughs> Hang on, I've got to get my notebook out. I think that's about number 125, the number of times I've heard that. But <laughs> <laughs> It won't end there either. Not just full circle, people say full circle, but do, do you see what I did there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also like uh, the fact that they do this returning to Nerva thing. Is that the first time they've done it in Doctor Who? Because obviously it's kind of a... Oh, a story repeatance. arc, which is an arc, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's exactly mm. what they did in the story, The Ark. Oh, yes, of course. And here was. they are. And here they are doing it in the story, The Ark in Space. Uh, so they did it again with The Long Game and Bad Wolf. Mm. Mm. But yeah, when they did it in money. the 60s and when they did it in the 70s, it's exactly the same story. Humanity in a spaceship off to find a new home. And we come back and it's several centuries have Passed or unpassed, in the case of uh, Revenge of the Cybermen, but same thing really. Mm. Which is, and I don't, and you've got to look at the people involved in the Ark in Space and Revenge of the Cybermen, and think they didn't have a clue that the Ark even existed, let alone what happened halfway through that story. So it's got to be just coincidence, really. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, the way that season pans out with the story sort of connecting in that fashion, it's not really a story arc as such. <clears throat> but it is a nice way to connect up the stories to make it feel like a bigger adventure. And it's a nice way to give the characters, the regular characters, a through line in the series. Because if you just do five stories that aren't connected at all, that can be shown in any order, like the Avengers... For example, in the Avengers, they deliberately made them so that you could show them out of sequence. If you do that in Doctor Who, yeah, okay, the individual stories are great, but they don't add up to anything more. Whereas in Season 12, especially if Terror of the Zygons had been shown at the end of Season 12 like it was supposed to have been, you feel like the Doctor and Sarah and Harry have gone on this journey. And although it's not a journey that necessarily brings development in the sense that we get with arcs these days, it definitely feels like an actual journey, the whole thing, a big, complete journey, in the same way that The Key to Time might a few years later. And yeah, yeah. We, I didn't think we'd really had it quite like that in Doctor Who, although it did harken back a little bit to the William Hartnell years, yeah. where you got the cliffhangers at the end of each story into the next one. But you've got the time ring um, going through this, which you haven't mentioned mm. at all until this point, actually. Um, which, you know, adds a tiny bit of tension, doesn't it? Because if you drop that on the floor, or uh, I think in Genesis of Daleks it's taken away from him at the beginning, you know, mm. one of his main purposes is just to get that ring back so he can escape. You can see the Doctor's always thinking about, in the back of his mind, OK, I've got to sort this adventure out, but I really need that time ring, otherwise I can't get back home or I can't get back to the TARDIS. Because obviously the TARDIS is that lovely, cosy kind of cushion which he can fall into at the end of every episode, and that's stripped away from him. So it gives it, it does give it that little extra bit of tension, which I really liked actually. I thought it was a great, yeah. great little idea. But I think I think it is nice at, at the start of you know from Ark in Space into this entire experiment into Genesis into Revenge. There's a reason for them being, being there in each, story, in each yeah. story, rather than just this happens to be where the TARDIS turns up. Yeah. Which is all right, but you need to, you need to, and I, I think maybe that's something that helps with the East Space trilogy in my one as well. That there's a, there's a reason, kind of, why they're, they're, they're traveling around and why they're going to different places. Um, rather than just, you know, they happen to turn up there 
or the old chestnut, yeah. we deserve a holiday. Boom, you know. Um, yeah. I think that's one thing that modern Doctor Who's lost a little bit is the fact that the TARDIS, you know, most of the stories start with where should we go? Rather than, you know, mm. oh, is this where we are? Yeah, yeah. Right, anyway, what I'm going to do now is, very last thing, I'm going to ask you each to nominate your favourite story from the season. And we're going to go in ascending order of importance. So, Lee, if you'd like to tell me first. (laughs) Oh. I've had a a promotion. I hate you, JR. Um, Oh, lordy. God. All right, okay. um, Like Andrew said, it changes from day to day. Now, I will probably go today for Ark in Space. All right. Yeah. Simon. Yeah, Ark in Space, no question. It, it just glows. And my choice would be the Ark in Space to Andrew. <laughs> because of my nostalgic association to it, I'm going to see Revenge of the Cybermen. If I had to pick one oh. of these five, one of these five, if I was shut away in a room for a week and I had only one to look at, it would be that one. Because, I've, again, just the nostalgic association with it is so strong. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Cybermen. Oh. <laughs> Season 12 then, guys. What a wonderful, wonderful time to be growing up watching Doctor Who. Mm. Mm, yeah, watching it before I'd even started school. I started school that year. And it was really good. It was really good. Uh, and you youngins listening to this, it was really good not to know what was coming up each week. Yeah. And all you had was, again, just the Radio Times... And just the listings, really. The, the chance of there being an article discussing it was very slim. Yeah. It really happened. So you just get, you know, so oh, it's called a robot of death. Well, oh, hang on, the guy from Callan's in it. And he's playing a Russian called Yovanov. <laughs> 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 and, you're, you know, you're trying, to, you're trying to pick something out of that, you know. And then yeah. tell us, wait, Shayang, what? <laughs> Yeah. I, mean, this, but, I mean, this is it. We, yeah. I, I really miss those those days of not knowing too much, um, and mm. you know, not being able to watch it again as well. So it retains in your memory, and the memory cheats, and it gives you a nostalgic value. Whereas nowadays, you can just go back and rewatch it about eighty times in a second. But and you didn't and judge I, it, either, you know. Yeah, but then you, you just every time you watch it, it again, you mm. watch it, you feel differently about it. Like Death in Heaven, I've seen two times now, so I feel different about it the two times I've watched it. Um, but I don't know. There's something about you know watching it just the once and not and having to sit there on that Saturday evening, knowing that if you miss it, you're never going to see it again. Obviously, we know that that's not the case now. But Being, uh, you know what the brilliant thing about this season uh, and the two that follow is is that they were brilliant when you saw them just the once, and they really stuck in the memory, even though you had no hope of ever seeing them again. And the Target books really evoked a strong feeling for them. But then yeah. when they did come out on VHS and on DVD, they lived up to your memories of them. Yeah. Mm. And that's what's so brilliant mm. about these stories. They work on all those different levels. And that is something that people have lost now. That, that thing of the memory of seeing something once and then even like five or ten years later, you remember it. And mm. even before Web of Fear came out, you know, I, mm. I have strong memories of bits of the Web of Fear. From you know before it came out last year, I know one episode was available, but the stuff I remember was Yeti actually in the underground, um, and other Patrick Troughton stuff. And I I was I was so chuffed when uh, the Spearhead from Space 
came out on DVD because I remembered the trailer. Uh, ah. I remember watching the trailer. I remember people watching a radar screen on the trailer and yeah. uh, and seeing on the trailer again the Doctor falling out of the TARDIS and then uh, <laughs> see, seeing that trailer on the DVD was like, yes, 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 that's it, I remember that. But you did only you, saw it the once. Did you have a black and white or colour television, Andrew? Um, I, I'm not sure. I've tried to think. I, I, I don't know if we had the colour telly when John Pitt we started. I do, I do remember that the first thing we saw on a colour television was Larry Grayson. Google him if you don't know who he is. Um, with a, and he was, I, I don't remember it. There was a blue background behind him. So God knows when that was. Sometime in the 70s, early 70s. Certainly a colour, you know, by, uh, by John Pettery's second or third, definitely had a colour television. That's, uh, um, yeah, but still, I mean, even, even by the time this one, I'm sure plenty of people still had black and white televisions. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm calling time on it, guys. We've overrun by considerable. But it's been great. And, Andrew, thank you for joining us. Yeah. My thank pleasure. Thank you for joining thank us for this. Um, next week, uh, a bit of a treat. Mark's going to come back. Hey. And Josh is going to return after joining me. Um, was it the Time Heist episode I did with Josh? Yeah, I think it, it might have been. Yeah. And he said he was going to come back at the end of the series and talk about the rest of the stories. So I'm going to have Josh on and Mark to talk about what Mark thought of Series 8. Excellent. So that's, so that's lined up for next week. In the meantime, I was JR. I was Lee. I was Simon. I was Andrew. And we will speak again soon. Bye-bye.